This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome back to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. On Tuesday's edition, we look at government by WhatsApp and what we've learned about Matt Hancock's priorities during the pandemic. We'll be talking over Rishi Sunak's plan to crack down on small boats crossing the channel and the row over the new report into the Prevent strategy. And Harry and Meghan have reportedly been turfed out of the royal residence of Frogmore Cottage. Which homes did our panellists hate to leave and which ones couldn't they wait to see the back of? Let's meet the panel. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Roz. It's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, and of course the Northern Ireland Assembly isn't actually sitting at the moment, thanks to the DUP boycotting it. Do you have a sense of which way the wind is blowing? Do you think the party is going to accept the Windsor Agreement? It's a good question. As it happens, I was in Belfast last week, and I'd love to say that means I have a special insight into the thinking of the DUP. I'm not sure that I do, um, but certainly the, the impression I got from people I spoke to is is confirming of what I think is said more widely, that, uh, that the DUP knows that over the sort of long durée, their grip on Northern Ireland politics is weakening. But whether or not that translates an, into them doing the right thing with this deal and realising it's as good as they're going to get and taking it, I think it's not clear. Um, but I, the, the fact that they haven't responded yet suggests to me that they're still holding out for some kind of concession, even if it's only a kind of performative one that they can then sell to their followers. So all still to play for? Well, certainly a bit to play for, I guess. Tom Peck is the parliamentary sketchwriter for The Independent. Hello, Tom. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. We learned today that Boris Johnson, having already ennobled his brother, has nominated his father for a knighthood. Do you think you will ever be able to write the words Sir Stanley without a jolt of disgust or wry amusement? Well, I think I would certainly go out of my way to ensure I never wrote the words Sir Stanley regardless. Um, I, I used to be, when I was, one of my first jobs in journalism, when I was like a diary reporter and I used to have to go to all the parties and premieres and stuff, I used to see more of Stanley Johnson than my own family. That guy would go to like the opening <laughs> of an envelope, would, would go to the opening of an envelope. I honestly think there is no British male or British person in the 21st century who has eaten more complimentary canapes than Stanley Johnson, <laughs> with the possible exception of Ben Fogel. Uh, they, like it would be th- those two would be like clear gold medal, and then everybody else would like be the whole the whole lapse behind. Um, I, I guess. Look, I mean. Boris Johnson has already disgraced himself with his use of the honours system, despite the list still not having materialised. Uh, his brother is, is his brother, I think, is the only um, person who's resigned on a point of principle from his own brother's government. Uh, is in the House of Lords as a consequence. Like Stanley Johnson is the sort of person who would love more than anything to achieve uh, to receive some sort of honour or bauble or, or something that could uh, ingratiate him further in his sort of climbing ways. I think the what. What is quite interesting about it is that I don't think Boris Johnson has necessarily worked out that he's his own worst enemy on this stuff. We know that Keir Starmer and Labour would quite like to finish off what they started in 1997 and get rid of the House of Lords and maybe reform the honour system entirely so that it's not like, doesn't feature the word empire, it's not like this antediluvian rhetoric. And the more Boris Johnson uses it for utterly outrageous, stupid, um, nepotistic, cronyistic ends, the easier it makes the next government to do what should be a politically difficult thing at all to do and sweep it all away. So in that regard, I hope he does give his, uh, give his dad a knighthood or a sainthood or whatever it is he wants to do. We just, we just move inexorably towards the worst so that we can embrace the best, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Seth Tevos is a journalist, author of several books about private members clubs and, as we've recently discovered, a big fan of old Doctor Who. Hello, Seth. Nanu, nanu. I mean, at this stage, I've been pigeonholed as the resident geek on this show, so I might as well embrace it. 
<laughs> I think you should. You talked about your favourite doctor on Oh God, What Else last week, uh, this week, in fact, for listeners. But who is the most terrifying villain, I wanted to ask you? I, I thought I might... Um maybe bring up uh, one of the more recent ones, actually, which is The Silence. Um, something Stephen Moffat's very good at doing is remembering how scary the unknown was as a child. And it's because this is a villain who has a natural camouflage so that you forget them the minute you're not looking at them. And you don't remember how many times, thousands of times possibly you've seen them. And the only thing you can do is to do, uh, use a marker pen to n- draw notches on your body when you see them. And you go from having three to 500, and you just think, oh, my God, I don't know what's happened to me. So that is, it, it speaks at you at a gut level. And um, frankly, uh, the state of British politics, plenty of things speak at us at a gut level. <laughs> yes, when I came to think about it, I realised that my, the most scary villain for me was not one of the ones I saw as a child, Daleks, Cybermen, etc., scary though they were, but actually one I saw as an adult. And that might have been because I was on steroids at the time, and I don't think that really has a very good effect on your imagination. Mm. But the Vashta Narada, mm. which just destroy, strip the flesh off things immediately, were, yes, just, just beyond beyond terrifying. And I haven't really been able to watch Doctor Who since then. And that's the same writer, Stephen Moffat, and it's all in the shadows. It's been a toe-curling week for Matt Hancock, Health Secretary during the pandemic, who's had his WhatsApp archive leaked to the Telegraph by his ghostwriter, the GB News anchor Isabel Oakshot. He's called what the Telegraph dub the lockdown files a massive betrayal. You'd think he knew by now what it was like to be screwed over by a right-wing journalist on the make. We're certainly used to it by now. Arthur, what have we learned about the workings of the government during COVID from this, this leak, this data dump? Well, um, I think we we probably a lot of us have had fears confirmed rather than necessarily sort of learning um, it, the the sense that this was a bunch of uh, kind of self important, self satisfied, smug people realizing by every turn that they'd screwed up massively and then reacting in real time as it feels is is very much on those pages and, and certainly the. The character that I had already assigned in my head to Matt Hancock appears to be confirmed by his private WhatsApps. I guess the the biggest revelation for me was is just how unbelievably inadequate Simon Case is, uh, a cabinet secretary that you know the most uh, senior civil servant um, in the land. He was clearly uh, appointed to be loyal rather than capable, but I hadn't realised just how far. He's just one of the little boys in the WhatsApp groups rather than somebody who should genuinely have gravitas as the most senior uh, non-politician in government. You feel what you already feared uh, is, is, is turning out to be correct, but in ways that perhaps you hadn't quite imagined. Oakshot's defence was that there was a public interest in releasing these messages for the benefit of the inquiry into the pandemic, which is going on. Does she have any kind of point? No, no, she doesn't. Because the first thing is, Obviously, we don't know what messages are being released. And there may well be messages that are completely defensible. Um, and, you know, some of the outrage I've seen directed at Hancock, uh, I don't think is necessarily fair. I think today's thing where he was saying that if they changed the isolation rules, it would it would sort of undermine the government's policy. That seems to be a fairly um, reasonable statement to make. And, of course, nobody's private messages necessarily shows them in a good light. What Oakshot has done is obviously she's just pulling out the ones that that help her own agenda, and she's very clearly an anti-lockdown activist. And then the other thing is that if if she wanted to release the the WhatsApp messages to the COVID inquiry, presumably she could have done exactly that. But I suppose she wouldn't have made any money that way. So I mean, I think we, we have to understand what she's doing. I I mean, it's it's a legit journalistic scoop. I'm I'm not questioning that, but but it's it's hardly. Uh, the, the sort of public interest defence, I think, is pretty weak. Some of the messages come across as just callous. Simon Case thought it was hilarious to put families in quarantine hotels at their own expense. Hancock and Williamson claimed teachers were work shy. What effect does pulling back the curtain like this have on the way people think about government? Well, I think um, perhaps to sort of go back to what I was just saying earlier, there is this point that these are the messages we're seeing are the ones that the Telegraph has pulled out. And I'm definitely not defending Hancock here, but inevitably they're going to pull out the ones that are the most juicy the ones that really read in a certain way and yes yeah, simon simon case coming across 
awfully. Gavin Williamson, basically, he thinks that teachers, you know, hate work, all kind of conforming to a kind of Tory, very male stereotype, sort of low, low level banter of self-satisfied smug people who, who, as it happens, while they were sending these messages, you know, were presiding over a disastrous pandemic response. Um, so it has the effect, in- inevitably, of confirming what is a widely ha- held view that uh, the government is incompetent, callous, lazy, corrupt. And that's probably true. But I think it doesn't help in the sense that there, there may well be wider contexts that if they are eventually, those wider contexts are eventually to be found, perhaps in a fuller inquiry, uh, that those will be kind of get lost in, in all the noise that, that we're currently experiencing. Tom, Isabel Oakeshott has turned over previous collaborators in her yes. journalism before. And the usual journalistic rules of not disclosing sources don't, don't seem to apply to her, do they? Uh, well, they definitely apply to her. She just uh, hasn't really taken very much notice of them. I, I, I think she, obviously this is not her first uh, example of breaking the trust of someone who's working with her. Um, Vicky Price, Chris Hoon's husband, went to jail because uh, Isabel Oakeshott turned over a conversation she's had with her and notes to the Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer. Um, she published that ludicrous nonsense about David Cameron and a dead pig and acknowledged that um, she didn't really know if, she, if it was true, but she should get it out there. But I would say that not all those examples are the same. And this one is a little bit different in a way, because the reason that journalists go to prison themselves rather than give their sources up is because their sources, generally speaking, are on the same page as them. Like they're assisting them in their quest to hold power to account. But this is quite a strange case, because in this case, the power that she's trying to hold to account is the source, right? And I remember when Matt, when the, the Pandemic Diaries came out, not that long ago, um, they, are, they are a ghost-written diary, and everyone quite rightly said about them that they were, uh, they were self-serving, they were a rewrite of history that glossed over Matt Hancock's enormous failings and makes him look like he never did anything wrong. And if Isabel Oakeshott feels that she was brought in to, go, to ghostwrite this book and then told here's all the here's all the evidence and by the way you're not going to actually write it up in a way that looks that does anything other than exculpate me for everything and then she decides further down the line actually that's bullshit i'm going to break this guy's trust i've known very good journalists do exactly that for the correct reasons specifically if you want to know for example in england's bid to host the 2018 world cup where uh, the organizers confided in lots of journalists that they were going to do things that were really dodgy and the journalists broke broke their trust and um, I don't blame them for doing that but the thing is that doesn't really seem to be what's happened in this case because in all these messages Matt Hancock obviously looks like a prat and Simon Case looks like it looks like a a bit of a wanker basically but he is also in some in the in the biggest regard in the story they did first i.e on the sending of untested um, hospital patients into care homes or people from the community into care homes without testing them he is actually kind of vindicated by these messages and they were published in a selective way so as to do what Arthur's talking about, like this sort of anti-lockdown agenda uh, campaign that The Telegraph is in and that's why she's gone there rather than for, with other organisations that actually you know, pay her on a contractual basis. You can make a case for what she's done, but it is undermined by the journalism that has come after the decision to do it, if you know what I mean. Seth, we've learned quite a lot more about Matt Hancock this week. Uh, little of it good. I have a theory that Johnson appointed a cabinet who each shared one of his own failings. What kind of a man is Hancock? That's a very psychological question, and it deserves a psychological answer. And I think that on reflection, the key lies in male pattern baldness. Um, Matt Hancock is a deeply insecure man and most of us who are losing our hair fit into two categories we either couldn't care less or else this overshadows everything about our deeply inadequate existences and um, Hancock is somebody whose political career is winding down I mean it was effectively obvious that he was more or less deselected by his constituency party the fact that his chairman is uh, openly criticising him and saying to journalists quote me please actually do quote me on the record on that Um, is a bit of a hint about that, even before he said he was standing down. Um, And part of him is also realising that there's this 
short bursts of life left, both personally and professionally, for virility, for having an affair, but also to sort of prove himself. And no one thought he was a serious candidate for prime minister in 2019 when he stood against Boris Johnson for the Tory leadership, but he probably gambled that he'd have less hair by the next time round. So this is someone who is trying to sort of go hell for leather while he can and while the going's good. He's got some celebrity. He's never going to be Giles Brandreth earning £10,000 a night for a corporate gig. You know, if you were to book Matt Hancock, he would remind you of death and incompetence. So instead, he's going while the going's good to um, you know, get the celebrity engagements he can. But there is this weird Alan Partridge vanity about him, where he's also worried about his legacy. I mean, according to his comments to a roomful of lawyers the other night, he's also worried about um, being sued and seems to be of the viewpoint that he should have legal immunity, which is what he said to a, a bunch of these um, lawyers. Um, they all pointed out that actually when there's a judicial review, uh, the person who's held liable is the Secretary of State, not, as Matt Hancock tried to insist to all of these lawyers, uh, the government as a whole. So this is the strangely vain place that Matt Hancock is in. And if he hadn't been stupid enough to give Isabel Oakshot all of his WhatsApp messages for the last few years, he might not be in this mess. Yeah, there is a lot of vanity and there's a lot of... Um He's he's very worried about cha- uh, being seen to change his mind, being inconsistent in any way, you know, even when that that changing his mind might come from the best scientific advice. Mm. And that was what really struck struck me most about him that it's all about the optics. Mm. So you know the sight of himself uh, hugging, shall we put it nicely, his um, his paramour in in an uh, in a government office must have been. I don't know. Was it was it was he secretly quite proud? Does his handling of the pandemic show any redeeming features? Um, to be fair to Matt Hancock, which is never an opening to any sentence, I thought I'd say. Um, <laughs> One of the things he was really keen to try and put across to people was that he's game for anything and he's energetic and he's up for anything and he'll take any amount of rubbish that's thrown at him. And he did that on the show. And actually, he did that with great energy and enthusiasm. Uh, the only problem is his judgment's shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is it is it a good idea? And this is a question for anyone, really, for so much government business to be carried out on WhatsApp. I mean, this isn't just a pandemic aberration. It isn't just something that happened because of social distancing. It's it's the new normal. How do we feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's obviously bad. There is a certain formality in government communications. You know, obviously, I I've got experience in this space, and there's a reason for the formality because you write things knowing that they will be on a record, and and in thirty years, someone might open up the files and and hold you to account and. And most things, you know, are disclosable with FOI or with other with other mechanisms like data protection and so on. And the reason WhatsApp is so popular is because it's it's a way around all of those things. You get people assuming it'll never see the light of day. And if it's if it were not for Isabel Oakeshott, and in that sense, perhaps we do owe her a a, a credit there. Um, you know, we wouldn't be seeing this because. Um, it's it you know you can delete your messages you can do what lord bethel says and claim that your your phone was clogged up and you had to uh, remove all the whatsapp messages which is an extraordinarily convenient excuse Meanwhile, Sue Gray of That Sue Gray is hoping to quit the civil service to become Keir Starmer's chief of staff. This news was pounced upon by Boris Johnson and his allies, who claim it showed she was never a neutral investigator and that her Partygate report can't be trusted. Arthur, was this a sensible move by Starmer? I actually don't think it was, and, and perhaps I'm showing my civil service bias here. Basically, she, Sue Gray, was at an extremely senior level, is at an extremely civil level in the civil service. Uh, permanent secretary. She's held unbelievably sensitive jobs. And so this is not like someone like David Frost, who was who was a bit of a nobody and had been out for a few years, uh, or even, you know, further back in history, Jonathan Powell, again, who was quite mid-level. And I think you've seen already that the Tories are trying to turn this into a conspiracy theory, both about Boris Johnson and the Partygate stuff, uh, and, and also the, the idea that Sue Gray has, has been a kind of covert Labour operative. Now, that's all bollocks. But um, it means that Keir Starmer is now having to grapple with that rather than getting a really talented new chief of staff on board and getting on with the job that he needs to do. So I just think that for that sort of pragmatic reason, it diverts him from, from his real work. 
Tom, we've seen photographic evidence that Johnson was at parties during the lockdowns, yet he's still maintaining that he didn't mislead the comments about it and, of course, using public money for his defence. How desperate is he to avoid being suspended or deselected? Well, he's very desperate. There's no doubt that he doesn't feel like he's done in politics. I mean, all of his um, problems that led to his eventual downfall, um, everybody here will recall, began with the Owen Paterson saga, didn't they? And the, the, what really happened there was that Boris Johnson used Owen Paterson as a pretext through which to seek to take down the Standards Commissioner because he knew that she was looking into his um, you know, £500 a roll golden wallpaper and he didn't want to be done by her. So and he so he was very he he's using he has reasonable amounts of rat like cunning although not necessarily that rat like because it clearly hasn't ended very well for him but there's no doubt that he will seek to do anything to prevent um, anyone laying a glove on him because he certainly feels like he's not done in politics I mean I, I, I'm sure you what's going on in the commons at, uh, on Monday is um it did are there, there were like twenty different requests for an urgent question on the Sue Gray appointment weren't there to the speaker, all of them made in identical format by Boris Johnson's supporters, because they're absolutely desperate to take down Sue Gray and therefore uh, compromise the investigation into Boris Johnson that's ongoing. Uh, that it, it, I do not think it will work. I personally don't think that the Sue Gray appointment is really going to be a problem for Keir Starmer electorally in, in 18 months' time or however, however long it is. By that point, I expect Sue Gray will have been appointed and his view is that she's someone of immense talent who is worth having and worth riding out this small storm for. I don't know her personally, but I know plenty of people who work closely with her who seem to agree with that view, that she will be a massive asset to him. So I think he's probably quite shrewd and we think he'll get through this minor obstacle and be all the better for it. There has been a lot of performative outrage about Sue Gray's planned move. Seth, how many civil servants do move on to political roles in this way? Should the rules be stricter or are most people fairly relaxed about it in the end? Well, historically, it's something that wasn't necessarily as unusual as it is now. I mean, you've got to remember that there was a long history of, uh, you know, when Britain was an imperial country 100 years ago, you'd appoint a a middle-ranking civil servant as governor of a far-off colony, and suddenly they'd be thrust into this incredibly political role uh, where, you know, they're looking after the supply chains of keeping people fed or not, as the case may be. More recently, we've tended to be... I mean, Arthur's right that we tend to sort of vary our views between the levels of the civil service. So low-level civil servants can still stand for election as a councillor for a political party. It's a bit frowned upon. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, in fact, the area I look at around private members clubs, um, the idea that you would hang around a politically themed club is very much frowned upon as something where if you're going places in the civil service, you don't do it. Um, if you're a slightly frivolous character, than you might. But it's rather the equivalent to inviting colleagues to a strip club. They would sort of wonder, what kind of a place is this? And what company do you keep? And what do you do here? And why are you doing this when in your day job this really looks bad? So that's that's the sort of faux pas element on it. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it, it depends on where Sue Gray wants to go with her career. I mean, the, the level of not just seniority, but sensitivity of the information she holds is the issue here, because she has been very much tasked with ethics forms and literally um, you know, 20 years of looking over what every single minister has privately written, declaring their own personal business and financial interests. So I can see why there's a bit of nervousness. That said, um, a lot of this does stem from whether she was proactively working on this whilst she was still a, a civil servant or not, what she'd agreed before and after her report. I, th- I think there is some you know, manufactured outrage. Um, and I can certainly think, for example, of uh, former heads of the civil service who are naturally given peerages, usually sit as crossbenchers, are generally pretty uncontroversial, but one or two have gone on to say things which weren't that far off being party political interventions and being quite lively and active in a way that they wouldn't have been when they were career civil servants. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Stopping migrants crossing the channel in small boats was one of Rishi Sunak's top five priorities. And this week, we're promised a bill, reportedly called the Illegal Migration Bill, that's intended to deter them by immediately deporting new arrivals to Rwanda or another safe third country and banning them from ever again claiming asylum in Britain. Arthur, we don't yet have the full details of this Illegal Migration Bill, but even some Conservatives are finding this problematic, aren't they? Yes, uh, and I think it's for two reasons. There's a practical reason that it's it's a thing you announce with no clarity on how you would carry it out. After all, nobody has yet been successfully deported to Rwanda. So the idea that we can deport more people there and some other new country that we haven't invented yet, you know, clearly that that's not in current reality. And then on on the the more sort of ethical moral questions around it, I think people do have a question about whether or not a lifetime ban, which is effectively what's being talked of here. And, and I've seen people on Twitter who, who know that their own grandparents or parents came to this country in irregular ways and wanting to understand, is, is it really the case that, that we would uh, deny someone the, the ability ever to be British because they, they, they might have come here in, in, in that way at that time? So I think um, that there are lots of reasons for people across the political spectrum to feel uneasy about this this announcement. So Sunak thinks or says this won't be in breach of the European Convention on Human Rights, but we know that the planned flight to Rwanda, as you say, didn't take off because of legal challenges. Is his plan perhaps to get the law through the Commons as quickly as possible and then defy any judicial rulings that try to stop the deportations? Is he setting himself up for a you know, judicial uh, clash? I don't think he's that person, actually. Um, I think that sort of relishing the the clash, which is, would have been very much the sort of Johnson and Cummings approach. I can't see Sunak doing that. I think it's more this idea that if you get your way, then you then you you know ship people off to Rwanda or whatever, and if not, then it's part of the culture war, and you can blame judges, you can blame lefty lawyers. Um, so it's it's not win win because because you don't win. In, in both cases, but it's sort of win versus acceptable political collateral, which I think is, is probably how he looks at it. Is there any evidence that the threat of deportation to Rwanda is deterring migrants in small boats? Uh, no. Next question. <laughs> and move on. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about Manuel Macron, because uh, there's also talk of Sunak having a chat with him this week. Uh, what's, what can he reasonably hope for from France that, that might help the situation? Yeah, I mean, interestingly with this, I think uh, Sunak has done a great job with France. I give him credit for that. And it's interesting, of course, the two big sort of immediate foreign policy challenges in terms of relationship with France, relationship with the EU over Northern Ireland, give him credit. He's He's gone off and, and dealt with it and dealt with it by not being an arsehole. And, you know, there's a lesson for everyone there. I think with France, specifically on the migration side, most of what is achievable was rather front loaded um in november with with the the existing deal that was you know announced by Braverman and her French counterpart. I imagine the Brits might sort of wish for a a bilateral returns agreement so that we could ship people back to France because of course one of the problems we have is that thanks to that thing called brexit, we can't um send people back to other European countries very easily. Well, we can't at all, basically. But I don't think the French will go for that. I don't think that's an option. And I think on Sunak's list of things that he wants to get done with France, there's a lot of things which aren't about small boats. But the whilst uh, the threat of deportation to Rwanda is not deterring migrants, I think it is absolutely believable and reasonable to expect that the deal that was done in November can have an effect I, I don't think it's a solution because I think having no safe route to enter the UK is one of the main problems here. But um, it is certainly the case that we, we've got a 
transformed relationship with the French. And that includes uh, the French doing more at the Mediterranean, which means fewer people come north to the Channel and so on. So, so I think in, in that sense, that, that those things are already in the bag. It's certainly an improvement on the trust here, isn't it, when uh, she wasn't sure if, if Macron was friend or foe. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's, we, we seem to have got over that, that tricky little conundrum. <laughs> Tom, Johnson and Trust appointed hardline and quite performatively cruel home secretaries in the hope that they would somehow fix the small boats problem, and they didn't. So Sunak is now taking ownership of the problem himself. Is that a risk for a man who has tended to shy away from the nastier side of his party and wanted to come across more as a pragmatist? It's definitely a risk. He's um, There's no doubt that he has staked essentially all of his um, reputation and prospects on this question. He came out with his five pledges at the start of the year. And now it's well known that almost all of those five pledges are self-solving, i.e. there's the one about halving inflation, which is, a, a, which is a pledge which is less ambitious than the Bank of England's forecasts. There was the one about um, paying back some, some national debt, which any government would hope to do. The only one that was tricky was number five, and he put it in three short words, stop the boats. And it's up on the wall behind him wherever he goes to speak. Now, I suspect the reason he's taken this risk is because he has calculated that it's something that, if it is solved, will be a significant um, electoral boost to him. There are lots of, um, like in the red wall, yada, 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 I don't like that term. the, The Tories believe that they're very, 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 very angry about small boats. And if they stop them, that may may sort of get snatch the next election from the jaws of from the jaws of defeat. So that's why he has taken this risk. But it's quite naive because he's taken it for political reasons because he knows that if he can deliver on it, that's a big win. But I don't think he's really looked necessarily at how hard it will be to solve. He's not. He's clearly not going to pull out of the ECHR. And as you've just as just been said, it was the ECHR that prevented that plane from leaving the runway at Bryce Norton that time. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's going to be anything in the legislation that is going to outfox all of the lawyers that prevented that, that plane from taking off if you're not going to take away the legal avenue through which they prevented them from, from that plane from leaving. So it's a massive risk. I cannot see from this point how it can possibly pay off. I mean, the, the, the Rwanda policy, as you all remember, was launched by Boris Johnson 24 hours after he was found, well, after he was given his fine for breaking the law in 10 Downing Street. It wasn't Sunak's idea. And now he's going with it, staking his reputation on it. And I do not fancy his chances. Let's talk about another headache for Sunak that's had less coverage. Um, the Shawcross report, which came out last week. The report came out of an independent review of the government's counter-terrorism project, Prevent. Arthur, you were in charge of the Foreign Office's contribution to Prevent, I think. Remind us what Prevent does, just quickly. Yeah, so very quickly, Prevent is the idea that you can uh, stop uh, people uh, getting into extreme radicalisation and militant violence and terrorism before uh, before it happens. So rather than uh, solve terrorism by arresting terrorists when they're just about to set off a bomb, you encourage people at a stage when they're toying with certain ideologies and ideas and, and, and prevent it that way. So that's the idea anyway. Why was William Shawcross picked for this job? He wasn't the first choice, was he? No, well, Shawcross has been on a bit of a journey in the sense that if you look at him as a young man, he was a relatively left of centre, quite um, a distinguished foreign correspondent. And he's ended up becoming this sort of solidly right wing kind of public intellectual is probably a title he'd quite enjoy. He's got he's got previous on the question of Islam. He's he's written extensively on it. And a lot of it is pretty, um, pretty tough stuff that some people would find to be Islamophobic. So I think he was picked because the government could rely on him to come up with a kind of culture warry take. And that's what he seems to have done. Yes, he thinks Britain's counterterrorism strategy has lost its way. And he thinks it's too wary of tackling Islamist terror because it's a fears of appearing Islamophobic. Was that your experience of the scheme at all? There were lots of problems with the scheme, but definitely um, not being too wary of attacking Islamist terror. And of course, some of the loudest voices against the Prevent scheme are those who probably wouldn't uh, like the term Islamist, but could be described as that, as sort of soft Islamist. And and the key thing to, to, you know, 
lay out. So this is my my take anyway, is that there's a difference between an Islamist terrorist and an Islamist. Now, political Islam, and this is, you know, we could do a whole 25-part podcast on this, doesn't necessarily uh, have anything to do with terrorism. It, there are quite a lot of people in right-wing circles, and of course, Michael Gove published a book on this, a ter- terrible book as it happens. You don't need to read it. There's a strain of thought uh, in, in the kind of right-wing think tank world, which Shawcross is quite comfortable in, that Islamism is everywhere and always problematic, uh, and, it, and it needs to be tackled. He thought that when he started the review. He definitely had preformed opinions, as it happened. I had a little bit of contact with him around that time, so I'm, I know that directly. And he wasn't terribly interested in hearing alternative voices, and he's come out at the end of the review with those findings. So critics of the report including Yvette Cooper and Labour, say that Shawcross has underplayed the threat from the far right in Britain. Do you think they're correct? Well, I mean, it's not just underplayed. He he basically made a big song and dance of the fact that we're sort of being too nasty to the extreme right, and it's not fair. Um, and when you consider that basically his boss for this report is Suella Braverman, who constantly uses um, tropes that are, are very uh, sort of far right adjacent, uh, you can see what's going on. It's, I mean, I, I think the Tory party has embraced the far right and therefore the Tory party needs to make um, Britain a comfortable place for far right people to carry out their sort of, um, you know, rhetoric. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not suggesting the Tory party likes far right terrorism, but this all over the world, what you're seeing is so-called mainstream political right parties uh, in a very dangerous alliance with the hard right. And of course, the Republicans are, are the sort of, they've gone the furthest, perhaps. Uh, and it often ends in insurrectionary behavior or murder or, um, you know, destroying independent institutions. But basically, modern conservatism doesn't seem to know what it thinks about democracy. And, and that, it, I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but that seems to me the, to be the issue. Tom, last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about Andrew Tate, who is still gathering mm. dust in a Romanian prison. What a shame. Do, well, <laughs> quite. Do we underestimate the potential for violence from the incel community, which is definitely adjacent to Tate's followers? Because we've seen mass killings in Canada and the US inspired by this ideology. Should we be worried in the UK as well? Well, you, um, well, you, you underest- underestimate the potential for violence from every community until such a point as it's acted upon it. Uh, I don't know how um, the the police naturally monitor in, in the best way that they can anyone who they think has gone to the dark side and is potentially dangerous. It's far easier, I suspect, to monitor that when it's attached to a clear religious conviction. Um, I, how 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 police can sort of spot potential incels from turning violence in the UK I I simply don't it's an extremely difficult thing to do you naturally cannot really arrest or charge anyone for something that they may do in the future it is a lot easier to to monitor or police the actions where actions revolve around for example problematic mosques where where with a history of where where known known uh, preachers of hate operate that makes the, that makes the like police life a lot easier uh, and possibly they travel down the path of least resistance. Quite how you're meant to prevent somebody who is inspired by misogynistic ideology online from taking action, taking disgusting action, and 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 acting upon that, what they're told in those in those weird communities. I really don't know. Thankfully, we don't have as many guns as the US, so that makes the police job easier. Seth Suella Braverman has predictably welcomed Shawcross's report. What changes does she want to make to prevent as a result? Well, her um, reaction very revealingly did emphasise that uh, we've perhaps been a bit too harsh on the far right and that we've overly concentrated on this and taking strategies forwards. Uh, We need to look more at the threat of Islamic terrorism. I mean, the, the report did... Uh, really focus obsessively on on this aspect of it. Um, I believe the word Islamist uh, is the fourth most frequently repeated word in the report. Um, And this is not a surprise for anyone familiar with William Shawcross's output. Again, I I would agree with the notion that I I wouldn't go so far as to call him as an Islamophobe because I think this is a very strong term you don't bandy about lightly. But if you look at his work, he certainly seems 
unduly obsessed with the theme of Islam and seems to have something of a bee in his bonnet on the subject. Um, and yes, very much for the reasons outlined in terms of the conservatives being rather comfortable in having people on the far right, not necessarily violent people, just people with far right views, um, making party politics more hospitable towards that. Braverman's rhetoric was very much around that. Um, I think it was perhaps unfortunate that a couple of days after the report came out, there was actually far-right violence in Merseyside that broke out. I mean, this couldn't have come at a worse time. Yes, she hasn't really condemned in particularly strong terms the uh, attacks on hostels where asylum seekers are being held, has she? No, and indeed uh, she has been uh, criticised very strongly by um, various Islamic groups and um, human rights groups, for example, on abuse of parliamentary procedure, as they see it, and the way that she's been able, under um, parliamentary privilege, to repeat some quite um, edgy comments. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting that Arthur pointed to some shortcomings in the Prevent programme. I think that's entirely fair. But um, the interesting thing is that if we didn't have it, we would probably try and develop something very much like it. You can only get so far by having a strategy based on walls and bricks and mortar and barbed wire fences. You, you can't do that. When we've seen terrorist attacks, which are literally a person with a knife, um, actually, something broader that looks at the causes, that looks at that, is very helpful. Um, there's a whole question about how you design that and how you target resources and so on. It's not just people with a very secular outlook um, who need to look at this, but actually, if you should understand religious or indeed non-religious extremism, I think you need to be able to talk their language. And dialogue very often means having uncomfortable conversations with uncomfortable people. Um, even if you're debating something openly and you've managed to convince 99% of people um, that something is right, there is the o an openness that that leads to that 1% may actually differs agree and differ. Um, and where does that come when we have, as a caveat in all of this, not wanting people to extol violence? Finally, last week it was reported that Prince Harry and his wife Meghan have been asked to vacate their official residence in the UK, Frogmore Cottage in Windsor. But it won't lie empty. Prince Andrew has been invited to move in. He's finding it hard to maintain his current lifestyle after the taxpayer stopped funding it and needs a smaller paced crash. The house is called Frogmore Cottage because when Queen Victoria had breakfast there in 1875, she saw an immense number of little frogs that were quite disgusting. Personally, <laughs> I've lived with worse creatures in my time. Tom... Harry and Meghan have reportedly been invited to the coronation in May to the glee of royal watchers everywhere. What do you think of the coronation plan so far? Uh, the bit that's been amusing me is all the um, artists who've like um, refused to perform. I mean, I, I, did, did, did you remember in 2016 when they were trying to do the B-pop live concert for Brexit? There was this glory, got into this glorious cycle of um, everybody who uh, they would ask an act to perform, they're like Nigel Farage's mates. They would say yes. And then journalists would ring them up and say, are you aware that this is a pro-Brexit concert? And immediately they would pull out. And then it got to the point where the only guests they had booked were two, the two remaining um, touring members of Bucks Fizz, who I think in the end pulled out anyway. <laughs> um, um, so that has been excellent, watching all these people be like, Kylie Minogue said no today. And you do wonder if it's a bit of a tipping point towards, um, like maybe, maybe the British monarchy got away with being a bit more cool when the Queen was around. And now people around the world are going to be like, no, you're yesterday's news, I think. So that's been quite intriguing. Uh, I've quite enjoyed Harry and Meghan's sort of, have they actually openly said that they've been invited and they're now deciding whether or not to go? Or have they sort of obliquely said they've maybe been invited and they still haven't decided? Presumably it's all to do with whether or not they're going to be allowed in Frogmore Cottage, um, which, which they've been chucked out of because uh, they're like um, uncle who's had to pay over 10 million quid to a, someone who's accused him of sexually assaulting her when she was a child with the connivance of a convicted sex trafficker and her like on-off paedophile boyfriend. So that's why they can't use their old home. I mean, if that was the circumstances under which I was invited to like a wedding or even a coronation, I might be a bit dubious about going too. When you put it like that, it does sound <laughs> a bit dubious. Is there a place that you've been very sorry to leave, somewhere where you've lived? Uh, well, I counted them up, and just in London, I've lived in Upminster, Golders Green, Maida Vale, High Street Kensington, Shoreditch, Vauxhall, Brixton, Stepney, Fitzrovia, St John's Wood, and now, by far the best, Romford. I don't remember being particularly sad to leave any of those places. The one place I really miss is my weird um, one-bed studio room that I lived in on 110th Street and Broadway 
on Upper West Side of Manhattan when I was 23. I lived there for four months and the whole thing is basically a blur. Um, I would go back to that time, that age and that life any day of the week. Seth, what do you think of the coronation plans so far? Will it all be slightly embarrassing? I mean, who is going to replace the cheeky corgis and the Paddington memes? I'm entirely the wrong person to ask because um, I start snoozing when there are these big royal events. I mean, I, I understand why it's done and it's an idea of trying to bring people together and there's little enough symbolism in our sorry little lives these days and we try and bring these bits of, uh, you know, tropes of, of symbols into, you know, the razzmatazz that's sadly lacking from our depressed lives. And once every so often, every five years, when the royal family's approval ratings are sagging a bit low, we find there's a nice royal wedding or a royal anniversary or a royal divorce and we'll um, you know take the streets and have parties and things um, and to be honest with you although it's not my bag um, I don't want to begrudge people who actually enjoy it I mean if if that's fun for them then go for it uh, that's a very diplomatic answer uh, have you got a frogmore cottage or somewhere that that you really were extremely loath to leave I spent a year as a master's student living in a tiny attic room in Bloomsbury with a view of St. Paul's in the distance. And when it was deathly silent past midnight and there was no traffic in the background, you could hear the chimes of Big Ben. And it was, um, you know, small and shabby and overpriced and not the healthiest place to live for so many reasons. But I loved it. Yes, I once lived in a place called Armen Court in Ave Maria Lane in um, London. And um, yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't, I didn't leave it entirely, it was suspicious circumstances, <laughs> but, which I won't go into in, in case anybody connected with that is listening. But um, it, the, there was, there was uh, the quite amusing uh, thing that occasionally people would take guided tours around the area and they would, uh, there was always a ghost of some sort who apparently lived there who would be described and at the appropriate moment I would I would make a noise out of the window that was designed to increase the enjoyment of the people huh. listening to the guided tour but thoroughly annoyed the um, person leading it so that was that was always fun short-lived but fun Arthur how about you um well I I was uh, the British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago for a while and that comes with an unbelievably nice house um, it's literally everything you imagine a British High Commissioner's house in the Caribbean is. So uh, that's that. That's one. Um, as it happens, did sorry, did you get to wear a plumed hat? I did not. Feathers? So this is I, funny. It's literally the thing oh. I get asked most often about that job, and due no doubt to austerity and um, you know the baleful woke in agenda or something else. <laughs> There, there is no silly clothes that go with that job. So there we go. I, I have a theory that Brexit would not have happened if British diplomats still wore plumed hats and fuel the delusions of power. Ah, you see that, that's, yeah, that's counterintuitive, but I see what you're doing there. The subject of diplomatic uniform, we could, we could go off on a little tangent, but I, I fear this is not the place for it. Let's have an oh God, what else special on that we in should, the future. We should, yeah. Um, how, how about is there a place that you were glad to leave? Well, I, as it happens, I'm moving house on Wednesday um, with some misgivings. But like anyone who's about to move house, I will be extremely glad once it's done. So I, I will be glad in the specific sense <laughs> that, that uh, we've come this far and there's no turning back. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Tom? Well, I mean, this is a very high-end one, but all of March it is half price for adults at Paw Patrol World, which is part of Nickelodeon Adventure <laughs> at Lakeside oh Shopping Centre. And it is excellent, not least as it is also right next door to Costco, and that place is the absolute nuts. You're talking to an executive member. So I'm already, what are we on, March the 7th? I'm already two in on half price at Paw Patrol World. Uh, I, may, I, I strongly suspect I'll get to double figures. Uh, on a more, I... something tiny bit more cultural, I've been loving um, Bad Sisters on Apple TV. Don't know if anybody else has watched it. Um, about, it's based by Sharon Horgan. There are five Irish sisters, one of whom is married to a complete bellend. And the other sisters decide to um, do the decent thing and try and murder him in various different ways that tend not to work. 
and it is absolutely excellent, not least the soundtrack, which has been recorded by PJ Harvey, and it's a cover of Leonard Cohen's um, Who By Fire, and it is spine-tinglingly good, and it is a brilliant, brilliant programme. Well, that does sound excellent. Um, I can't believe why you'd embrace Paw Patrol when the infinitely superior Rescue Bots is available on Netflix, but um, <laughs> we can discuss that another time. Not, not strictly my choice. Arthur, what is your escape route this week? I had a nice weekend away in Hay on Wye, you know, famous for its uh, ridiculous quantity of bookshops. Um, so the escape route was browsing in the bookshops there and then uh, leaving with a pile of books that I may struggle to, to get to read. Um, but, but one book I have been reading recently, which was, is great, very exciting, brilliantly written, is The Rat Line by Philippe Sands, who's this um, excessively over-talented uh, lawyer, writer, journalist i mean he seems to be able to do everything and it's a book about uh nazis um escaping at the end of world war ii to escaping justice and the connection to his own family and it's a really fascinating book the rat line can recommend that does sound quite riveting how about you sir uh, mine is much more lowbrow i had an extremely indulgent weekend of binging on dvds of looney tunes and uh, not only can i thoroughly <laughs> recommend it but based on the past form of your latching on to my apparently being the doctor who geek here um i fully expect that to now keep coming up <laughs> Well, I was uh, not quite forced to go to um, Creams this weekend for the first time, uh, which is a dessert chain. There are an increasing number of them. Apparently, it's very fashionable now. You just sell puddings and nothing else. Well, I think of them as puddings anyway. And um, my son had uh, something called an Oreo overload, which he did not manage to finish. <laughs> and I had something that was really extremely forgettable. But uh, the following day, I went to the cinema to see a, a, a movie called Close, which is very good. Belgian movie about uh, two, two young boys. Um, and their friendship and what happens to it, which I highly recommend. Sorry, moving. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday, or if you'd like the podcast a little earlier, you can back us on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who joined us for Alex's podcaster's question time last week. We'll be announcing the next panellist under the spotlight in the next few weeks. For now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and a big shout out from me to Gary Marsden, Joe Stafferton and Sam V. And if that's the Gary Marsden that I was at university with, hi Gary. So it's many thanks from me to CP, Elena Sisto and Matthew Howells. Hello and very best wishes from me to Charles Blakemore, Thomas Wilson and Mike Moore. And finally, thanks from me to Andrew Gunstein, Daniel Craig. Yes, Jane Retina. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Arthur Snell, Seth Tavos, and Tom Peck. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. An additional production was from Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh, God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Oh, God, what now?